The week was going pretty well until Wednesday. And Wednesday morning, as I was preparing, I got a text. Usually I don't open up my phone, and, but uh, for some reason I had left it on. And, and it was uh, our first youth director from our uh, church a few years ago. And uh, he had written a new article for the Gospel Coalition. And uh, he sent it to me with a personal note to let me know about our relationship, encouraging. And he really wanted to say, hey, let's both finish well. Uh, you know you're getting a little bit older when uh, your youth director's in his 60s. And uh, anyway, so Steve wrote this, and uh, he enclosed that article for the Gospel Coalition. And everything was fine until I read the title. You don't know when your last sermon will be. Well, it struck me kind of unusually because I was preaching four days afterwards, and, and uh, I called him up immediately. I said, Steve, what are you? What are you doing to me? Are you telling me that you've got special prophecy from God and that I'm not going to make it after this sermon or that I've already preached my final sermon before I get there? Steve, what is it? Are you some kind of a harbinger of the future? And that was kind of humorous, at least I thought so then, but not really then. I'm just glad to be here today. So... With a little bit of fear and intrepidation, we're going to launch into Samuel, for Samuel. And I'm going to get to 19 in just a minute. But what I'd like to do, let me give you just a little bit of an overview. I want to, I want to have you see with the chart here in a minute uh, how First Samuel is sort of a transitional book between the time of the judges and then the time of the kings with, with Saul, David, and Solomon. And then I want to get to the heart of everything in Solomon in uh, Samuel. I want to get to a couple of relationships with you. I want you to see how the relationship with Saul and David went at the very beginning, and then to see its progressive decline will kind of sadden you a bit. But then your spirits will rise a bit when you see the relationship that David and Jonathan had. And where I'm really going to go with this thing is that I want you to see that so clearly and dearly. I want you to grab hold of that and grasp it. I really do, because I think it's a glaring weakness in the body of Christ today. I think that we have got the social media working, and it's so contagious and it's so prevalent that what we have are just thousands of relationships that are no more than a quarter of an inch deep. And man, God has something to say about that to you and me. So I'm going to jump in with this chart, and I want you to see this. In 1 Samuel, it begins with Samuel. He is the guy. He is the man who was in a, a, a phenomenal example, especially in the period, the last of the judges. I mean, you have got the most depraved time in Israel's history in the time of the judges. Uh, in chapter 17 and chapter 21, verse 25, every man did what was right in his own eyes. But Samuel was a guy that was godly, that pumped hope into the system, into the lungs of those Jews. He was motivated to please God, and his character was apparently, of what we read, almost impeccable. You see the chapters of Samuel as that last judge. He followed guys like Othniel, Shamgar, and you know uh, Gideon, and Samson, and all those characters. My favorite, I love judges, at least the biographies, because you've got, anybody left-handed here? Raise your hand. You got, okay, some of you God-gifted people are. All right, so Ehud is unbelievable. 
He was a left-handed judge who took on Eglon and concealed the spear. I wish I had time to tell you about it. But man, you can't get over that one. And Jephthah, what an incredible guy. Man, he was the son of a prostitute. Talk about giving us hope. If God can use Jephthah, branded, banded judge, he can use you and me. So that's that story of the judges. Now, transition. Well, here we go. We go to Saul, the first king. One of the pivotal, pivotal verses finds itself, it's chapter 8, verses 6 to 9. The people were rejecting God, but Samuel was taking it personally. And so God said, Samuel, it's not about you. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. That's in chapter 8, verses 6 to 9, pivotal. And then you get to chapters 13 and 15, which Chris has done such a great job expositing. In chapter 13, Saul was supposed to completely wipe out the enemy, but he didn't wipe out all. He wiped out some because only some he classified as unworthy. And he saved all the rest because he feared the people more than he feared God. And so in chapter 13, verse 14, it says specifically from Samuel, from God, Samuel the prophet, Saul, your kingdom will not endure. And so the transition is made, not just from the judges to Saul, but from Saul to another king, heir apparent. And as we know, toward the end, we see that it's David. He is chosen. He is trained. And after his refugee posture is assumed, it was 10 years that he was on the run from Saul trying to catch him and kill him. Chapter 17 through 31. The beginning of the book is fabulous. It's with Samuel, the impeccable, righteous judge, prophet, priest. Actually, do you know that in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel and in Luke chapter 2, there's a phrase that shows that Samuel is actually a type of Christ? That's correct. In chapter 2, it says that he grew in stature and in favor with God and men. In Luke chapter 2, verse 54, and Jesus grew in stature and in wisdom and in favor with God and men. Sort of a type. Samuel was incredible, but at the opposite end, the ending, Saul's apostrophe comes like a tsunami from all of his wrong decisions. I like to tell our, we like to tell our children, you have so much freedom in Christ, so much freedom in this life. But be careful of the choices you make. You have the freedom to make those choices, but you cannot choose the consequences. Because Saul made wrong choices, the consequences, God's putting him away. He's not going to use him. He's going to take his Holy Spirit from him, which was given on a temporal basis in those days, especially with guys that were prophets, priests, and kings like Samuel and like Saul. And so the Holy Spirit was taken from him, an evil spirit was given. He was rebelling against God. What I want you to see is a relationship, first of all, that started out magnificently. I want you to see how Saul felt about David, the incredible, courageous, musical, handsome, ruddy, you name it, he was it. That's David. It started out so well, but ended so poorly. I wish that we could say it would bring joy to our heart, but anything that spoils that badly 
leaves sort of a sour taste in our mouth. That's the relationship between Saul and David. And then what I really want to do with us this morning is talk to you about this thing called friendship, biblically speaking. I want you to see it full-blown, 1 Samuel chapter 18, 1 through 3, but throughout 1 Samuel. I want you to see what David and Jonathan had because I firmly believe, fully believe, that God wants you to experience a friendship that doesn't supplant a great relationship in marriage, but certainly will supplement your life with someone with whom you can identify like only a guy can for me or only a girl can for my wife Anne. So I want you to see that what God desires in your life in the body of Christ at South Spring. Let's talk though, first of all, now that we've gone through this chart, a little bit about the relationship that Saul had with David. I'm going to take you through some verses quickly, and they're going to sort of appear on the screen here. And I want you to see these for yourself, and I want you to see specifically the progression, the progression. I'm going to fixate on some words that depict, that describe the relationship in simple form. And you watch the direction, the decline. All right? So first of all, you see uh, in chapter 16, verse 21, please note this. David, David came to Saul, and Saul loved him greatly. We emboldened that because I want you to see that Saul was so excited about David there. When that evil spirit was given to him, he who could play the harp magnificently would bring solace to his soul. He brought such a softening and a tenderness to his whole sense of being. And so Saul just absolutely loved him and the victories that he brought against the Philistines as well. But personally, he loved him for what he did for when he played for him. And so loved him greatly. Chapter 18, verses 8 to 9. Actually would like to see, have you seen, he became, let me read just a little bit of this so you can kind of catch the, the feeling in chapter 18. Chapter 18, verse 7. Remember the women sang when, Dal, when, when David was incredibly victorious? He went out against Philistines and, and uh, he killed thousands upon thousands. And the women perhaps sang antiphonally, thousand, ten thousand, Saul, David. And, and as they would greet the victorious warriors coming home, this could have been resounding down the corridor. Uh, and uh, Kabwa, and so Kabwa, and so what? What uh, Saul begins to do is become very angry. But in verse seven, the women sang as they played, and and said, "Saul has slain thousands; David is ten thousands." In verse eight, then Saul became very angry, for the for the saying displeased him. He said, "They have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me ascribed thousands." Now, what work? Can he have but the kingdom, which he, of course, had himself? Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. There are three words, angry, displeased, suspicion. It went from loved greatly, south, soured, to angry, displeased, suspicion. And then in uh, verse 11 of chapter 18, Saul hurled the spear 
For he thought, I will pin David to the wall. Now, don't pass over this too quickly. This was one of the two times that Saul tried to take him out and run him through with the hurl of a spear. Understand that Saul was quite a warrior himself. And he had killed thousands of people. Remember the song? Saul has thousands. He was engaged in battle so often. He knew how to throw a spear. So David, with great agility, had to go one way or the other and escape. But he would have been killed by that spear hitting him and going through him. So he was so angry that he hurled. That's the word we're looking for. He hurled the spear at him. In verse 12, Saul was afraid of David. Notice the progression. Suspicion, anger, hurled a spear, afraid of him. And in verse 15, he was actually in dread of him. That is severe fear. He dreaded him. And then in 1817, it says, For Saul thought, my hand shall be against him. That's what I want you to see. See how it's uh, emboldened twice? Now, I'm not just upset personally within my soul. This is my adversary. I am against him. He is my opponent, my enemy. That's the way he was considering the man who would be described as the man after God's own heart. So Saul had it in for him. He was against him. In 1821, he, he uh, gave first his oldest daughter, but retrieved her, and then gave uh, David his second daughter, Michael. But he set this up, not in a traditional way in that day, of a dowry, which would entail money, etc. No, he said, I tell you what I want from you. If you want to marry my daughter and become my son-in-law, which David naively said, oh, wouldn't that just be wonderful? Wow. He said, I want you to go into battle, and the only thing I want you to do is to beat those Philistines. And what I mean by beating those Philistines, I want you to bring back that which in that day was kind of rude and crude. I mean, more or less successful certainly this day, but a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Wow. So David is supposed to go do that with his band of men. And so he does that, but David is an overachiever. So you know the story. He came back with 200 foreskins of the Philistines. And so he was quite impressed and that which was to be a snare to him actually became sort of a dread to him because of uh, God being on his side. That dowry went south. He didn't think it would happen. He thought the Philistines would take out David immediately, but they did not. In 1829, then Saul was even more afraid. Thus Saul was David's enemy continually, opponent. It began with continual presence of love. He loved him greatly. Now look at where it has gone. Saul was David's enemy continually. So it's gone from really great to really worse, really bad. We don't want to end up here at all. From sad to sour. I mean, to spoiled, to a repugnant smell. It was just filthy in Saul's mind. And David did nothing wrong. But God was working to prepare him for leadership. The passage that Chris was talking about, 
I suppose we must address it. He was kind of chuckling about it a little bit. It is kind of humorous in a way. And, uh, you know, it's where in uh, chapter 19, if you want to look at it, it's really in the Bible here. In chapter 19, uh, Saul uh, stripped off his clothes. And you're thinking right now, wait, I've got kids in here. Uh, Pastor, what are you doing here, Bob? And, and so he too prophesied before Samuel and lay down naked all that day and all that night. Therefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? What do you do with that? Wouldn't you love to know? I'd love to share with you, but Chris is going to handle that next week. <laughs> all right, here's what happened. The rest of the story. Saul, in this passage, having failed with the Philistines through Michael's dowry, with the Philistine stuff, uh, you know, he said, okay, what, what do I got to do? I gotta, where is he? Where is he? Okay, so he seems to be in the city in Ramah. Well, that's where Samuel lives. So he's seeking the protection of this great prophet Samuel, the last of the judge, well, judges. Okay, so I've got to go there. Well, I don't have to go there. I can just send my emissaries, the soldiers, and they can take David out because that's exactly what they were intending to do. Saul, in chapter 19, verse 1, Saul had told Jonathan, his son, and all his servants to put David to death, but apparently they didn't, and so now he's going to take matters in his own hands, and so this is what he does. He sends those soldiers down there. They failed the first time. They started prophesying. Wow, that's not what we want. We didn't want prophecy. We wanted the purging of David. We wanted him removed, take him out. Then they sent more, and then that failed. Then he sent them a third time, and that one also failed. So he said, I've got to take matters in my own hands. So that's exactly what it is. He goes to Ramah himself with an entourage of soldiers, I'm sure, as it says. And he goes to this place called Naoth. Naoth is like a a uh, community. It's a community. It's almost like what we would call, if it's got a school of prophets, almost like a seminary community. And so I'm going to go into the heart of the seminary of those prophets, and I'm going to grab David, and I'm going to slit his neck. I'm going to cut off his head. He's done, as far as I'm concerned. What do you think of when you think of David? Death. That's what he was saying. So he takes his men there, and as soon as they get to that vicinity, that community, what happens? The Spirit of God overwhelms the soldiers. It overwhelms Saul. And Saul immediately begins to prophesy. But it's not just internal prophecy by the Spirit of God. He does something else. And here's what I think it means. There are two Hebrew words that are used for uh, naked it may, and I, listen, I don't think we're going to go where, pro, where you may be thinking. I don't think the prophets were the first streakers. I really don't. I think this is what happened from the Hebrew. I think it means that he stripped off completely all resemblance, all semblance of, dignity, uh, of, uh, of kingship. And he takes all of these vestments, he divests himself of all of that clothing and sets it aside. Did he take off his Hanes t-shirt? I don't think so. I don't think he took off his Michael Jordan underwear. Okay, I think he's got the undergarments there. But I think anything resembling kingship, 
being a regal robe, everything was removed from him, and he lay down and he prophesied. Remember this. In chapter 10 of 1 Samuel, after Samuel had anointed Saul, he began to prophesy. I think that is one of the bookends. The other bookend is right here that we're talking about in 19. I think in 1924, the Spirit of God comes upon him, and in that book, of those bookends, you have the working of the Spirit of God off and on, as was customary in the Old Testament, but off and on, and then it's over with, and in 29 and 31, he's done. Saul is dead, and the Philistines steal all of his robes. But at this particular time, at this particular time, this is what happened. The Spirit of God is done with him. The Spirit of God, though, before he's done with him, says, I've got control of you, and I'm going to move our nation forward. My plans, my purposes are not set just in you. You are someone that I'd use for a time, but it's over with, and my plans and purposes are going to continue, but with a different person by the name of David. So we're done with Saul pretty much, and Samuel never has anything more to do with Saul at all. And so that's what I think it means. Good? Good. Chapter 19. All right, so that's with the Philistines. I mean, that is with Ramah and Naoth and the proposed divestment of clothing that had any semblance of kingship whatsoever. Now, that's the first relationship. The first relationship is of Saul and David. It began well. It ended very poorly. What was supposed to be great went south, and it soured. But the next relationship that I want to show you is one that soars and makes us incredibly glad. So I want you to see what I think God wants you to really grab hold of this morning. And that's the relationship that David and Jonathan had. I want to give you four essentials of a good friendship today. I get them directly from Scripture. I get them from the relationship David enjoyed with Jonathan. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 through 3. Let's go there for a moment. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 through 3. Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul, that inner core of Jonathan was just knit, enchained literally in Hebrew, to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as himself. Everything appropriate, everything right, pure. Men encouraging men. Proverbs 27, 17. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. This characterized David and Jonathan. And they had so much in common, but they loved each other. We're going to see the characteristics of it. And Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house, Pastor Jesse. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he had loved him as himself. So let's talk about this. Let's talk about the relationship in terms of four essentials. Number one, a commitment to God. That's so easy to see. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 26, David said to the men who were standing with him, what will be done for the man who kills the Philistine takes away the approach from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of God. I'm a part of this covenant nation. I love God. I am committed to God. 
I am a part of saving and glorifying him, his reputation. So that's what I'm about. And if I do that, if I'm faithful as God has been faithful to me, then it's going to be a victory. I am totally trusting, totally personally confident in what God will do. That's, it was an unshakable trust. I'll take him on. I don't care how big he is. And then in uh, 1 Samuel 14, 6, you see that of Jonathan. As he and his armor bearer were contemplating taking on this garrison of the Philistines, he said in 14, 6, the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. I love that. Boy, there's a, that's not cowardice. That is courageous. I mean, this guy said, if God's in it, we're going to win it. And as a result, he just said, let's go. And the armor bearer said, what's in your heart? Let's do. And so, man, they went after it and they killed those 20 Philistines. These two guys, what I want you to see, are deeply committed to the living Yahweh, to God. And they wanted to serve him. They wanted to represent him. They wanted to battle in his name. And they did courageously. So they had, first of all, a deep commitment to God. And uh, then he, uh, in this passage in 1 Samuel 18, he actually made a covenant with him. And that, folks, is an interesting covenant because it's not really uh, involving David as, by saying anything and agreeing to anything. It was really a unilateral covenant. Saul was on the give, not the take, and he said, I'm going to take the initiative in this. I love you that much. And so that's what Jonathan did. He committed the foundation of their relationship. is what? A love for God. How much could I say about this? That's what you need in your life. You don't need someone that just goes to church. You need someone who's in love with God, just like you are. What did I need when I got married? Oh, I needed someone who wasn't just a Christian. I needed someone who was really growing as a Christian. That's what we told our kids. My wife has been an incredible help to me because of that. Not just naming Christ as her Savior, but living for Christ as her Lord. What an incredible difference it's made. And so will that kind of friendship that's not supposed to take the place, supplement a marriage. But, uh, what am I trying to say? Not supposed to supplant a marriage, but rather to supplement that intimate relationship in marriage. That's what I'm trying to say. So we need a friend that is really committed to uh, Jesus Christ. They're committed to God. When I was 25 years old, I just become, I just graduated from seminary, and I went down to Houston. And uh, we met, uh, we're part of this church, Bethel Independent Presbyterian Church. Not Presbyterian, Independent. And uh, we were in there, and we were at this uh, deal for new people, and along comes this guy, just gone to medical school, and uh, he was doing a residency uh, in pediatrics at Herman Hospital. His name was John, his wife, Cindy. They'd just been married. We'd been married. We're old-timers. We'd been married four years. And so we were both about 25 years old, and we struck up a relationship. Wow. I had no idea. What job would be in my life? When our third child was born, John, being a pediatrician, helped out immensely. For you see, Stephen, the day after he was born, coughed up a third of his blood, and they uh, lifelined him. You know, to 
Texas Children's there in Houston, in the Med Center. They gave us no hope. John did. He said, I'm on this. From Conroe, he operated, he, he worked and worked. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget the trauma of this whole thing, rushing down there and seeing our day-old son in this, uh, you know, deal the, you know, you, you know, you push babies in, you know. And I just, I didn't know, is this really, is this Stephen? And they said, yes, and he looked dead. I worked through all that kind of stuff, and Stephen is live and well and still gives me a hard time today at 47. But the point is, John was all over it. He was my friend. He was on the give, not the take. John had done so many times when I got a degree, he wanted to, he and his wife flew out to be there and, and watch the whole thing on the give. When, uh, when they couldn't have a second child, they did a private adoption. And on that private adoption, uh, he asked Ann and me to pick up that son, Scott Garrett, the day after he was born and take him. The relationship was so deep, we did all this hunting together, we did mission trips together. I could tell you for the rest of the sermon and a whole lot longer, how we go down to Belize together, how we did different trips and how he would do a clinic with all these people in subsistence level of living area in Belize, very poor, very impoverished. And John was just incredible. He was never happier than serving Jesus Christ. You see, what you're looking for is someone that has such a deep commitment to Christ that is going to spill over and giving you what you really need in a physical relationship on this planet, a commitment to God. Nothing can be exchanged for something like that. John was that to me. So much more I could say. Number two, a commitment to love. There's a commitment to God. That means you really have Christ first in your life. And then you come together and with that foundation, man, you construct an incredible friendship. Number two, a commitment to love. First Samuel 18.3, he made that covenant. And guess what he did after he made the covenant? Let me show you. In verse 4 of chapter 18, he stripped himself. See, there it is again. And it's a good context, isn't it? He stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. That's an amazing thing. The reason I say that is because he took off all of that stuff that gave him prominence and prestige and a place in a society. And he said, I want your success. I sense God working and elevating you. How can I be of help to that? Are we that kind of person in other people's lives? Servanthood is a desiring of another person's success. It's a commitment to love to that degree. I wrote in my notes, a prince's robe wasn't purchased from a pawn shop. It was crafted by the best clothiers in Israel. And what about the craftsman that worked on his sword, his belt, his bow. He gave him his best. Friendship, a commitment to love. That characterized Jonathan to the max. And so uh, these guys did not seek their own, 1 Corinthians 13, 4. In 1 Samuel verse 23, verse 15, David became aware that Saul had come out to seek his life while David was in the wilderness as if at Horus. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horus and encouraged him in God. 
How can I be a blessing to a friend? I will travel, I will speak words, I will embrace my friend and encourage him in God. That's friendship. And that's what they had. They had a commitment to love with one another. Number three, there's a commitment to honesty. There's a commitment to honesty. Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. A real need today in our culture is for us to have people speaking truth into us. You don't get that from social media. I think social media media is fantastic for information, but not for in-depth relationships. We don't learn how to deal with conflict. We don't learn verbal social skills through the internet. Please, people, there's a limit. Here is what God wants you to major on. That's a minor. Let's major on intimacy, on developing, on speaking truth, on being honest with one another, with our thoughts and with our feelings. That's what God wants us to do. That's what he wants us to do. In 1 Samuel 20, verse 1, David said to Jonathan, tell me what I've done that's wrong. Really, look me in the eyes. Come on, you're my friend. I want you to talk to me. Truth, don't hold back. Do you see any blind spots? What am I doing that's wrong? I want you in my life. Are we saying that to people that are really our friends that are closest? We need that. And honesty through the expression of feelings. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 41. They wept together, David even more, when they realized that Saul was just bent on destroying, killing David. He had to become a refugee, a fugitive, for over 10 years. So he wept even more, knowing what was coming. And these guys had open hearts, open expressions of emotion. That's masculinity. It's secure enough to let your real feelings be made known at the right time and with the right people. David and Jonathan. I have this quote by George Eliot that I want you to see. All the comfort, the inexpressible comfort of feeling safe with a person, having to neither weigh thoughts nor measure words, but to pour them out just as they are, chaff and grain together, knowing that a faithful hand will take and sift it or sift them and keep what is worth keeping and then with the breath of kindness, blow the rest away. That's friendship. Do you, have, do, you, do you know that kind of a friend? Are you that kind of a friend? Ladies, you have always been the benchmark, the gold standard, if I will, of relationships. I think that's waning, teetering a bit in our culture because of all the other responsibilities and the culture imposing its will upon you. I mean, I suggest to you, get back to that place of prominence showing us how to do, be really ourselves and, and trust in an intimate way, not with everybody on a large scale, with very few, can't have too many friends. You have a lot of acquaintances, but few friends. So we need you back there. I think women need women. And I want to tell you something. I've been in ministry a little while. Look at me. Scary, isn't it? No. For over 53 years, I have had a group of men in which I've been a part every single year. I have seen what groups do with men. And I'm here to say, guys, you need one. 
we're not going to entrust what's really going on within us in a group of mixed gender, men and women. We're just not going to do it. There's some things that are meant for guys who can really identify with what we're feeling and thinking. And when you get within a trust relationship with a group like that, I'll tell you what happens. When there's a trust, there's a confidence that there's hope. And I see someone else going through a difficulty, I can relate to that, I'm all over that. That's what I need. Fellas, we need to do that. We need these kind of friendships, David and Jonathan style. They were open. They were open with thoughts and feelings. They were honest with each other. And the last one that I see is that they were very committed to loyalty. Not just to God, to love, to honesty, but fourthly, to loyalty. Proverbs 18.24 A man of too many friends comes to ruin, and it can be translated broken in pieces. But there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. John, uh, that doctor, gave me something that is quite valuable to me. It's this watch here that I have. You remember Seiko? Yeah. Seiko watch. Oh, it's not the watch. It's what he engraved on the underside. There's a friend who sticks closer than her brother. 45 years, folks. And I'm going to tell you, even preachers need friends. Right, Chris? And you guys love Chris and all the pastors. I know that. But I just want you to know this thing's valuable because it is a symbol of a David-Jonathan relationship that built me up and kept me moving to finish the course and get home by night. As Steve wrote me from Alabama that scared me to death among my last sermon. We need this. We need that kind of loyalty. Someone who sticks closer than a brother. David and Solomon, excuse me, David and Jonathan did that. In 1 Samuel chapter 19, don't have time to read all this, but in 1 Samuel 19, in 1 Samuel 20 verses 30 to 33, you see Jonathan lifting David up before his father who was bent on death for David. But, and Saul tried to kill him for it, even his son, but he stuck closer than a brother. Wow. That's what you want, that kind of loyalty for what is right and right before God. Now tell me something. Is there someone in your life you would call a friend? Characteristics such as really love God, really committed to loving, really committed to honesty and loyalty. Is there a friend, is there a person you would call a friend by the way they trust you and talk to you and treat you? Do you have that in your life? Would you like that in your life? Then here's a wise word from a pastor who's with the Lord now, Stuart Briscoe. Cape and Ray originally, then Elmbrook in Wisconsin. You can't choose who will be your good friend. You can only choose to be a good friend to someone else. We want that kind of friend. But the direction that God would take each of us here is not just to ask God for that kind of friend. Let's stop asking God for that. And let's start asking God and praying that we would be that kind of friend 
to someone else. Someone who is really committed to the Lordship of Christ, to obeying Him. Not just lip service, true obedience, true devotion. Committed to honesty, committed to love, committed to loyalty. Let's be that kind of person and watch God supplement your life in such a way that you'll be filled with the fruit of the Spirit when that person's in your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your truth today. Thank you for the uh, true stories in the scriptures that highlight how relationships can be, in a, even in a sinful culture. We can be a David and a Jonathan. As ladies, we can have friendships that lift us up and support us incredibly. And Father, we see that need. Make us those kind of people that friendships might begin and might develop and might honor you and minister to us as a byproduct. We ask that for South Spring and for the individuals here. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Dr. Bob, for your wise words. As I wrote it as a summation sentence for my own note-taking, uh, it's a good word from God's word, striving for not the temporal things, but the eternal lasting friendships that God ordained. And so we appreciate you and thank you for you, for you being able to share so faithfully. And now as we move into time of application and invitation, it's always this that we want to end our services not by rote pattern or repetition, but because we know that God's word goes out and doesn't return void. Um, so it's our assumption that uh, there's, any, there's something to do with the Holy Spirit. Uh, prompting your life. And so we hope that in this time and in the singing that you deal diligently with what the Lord is uh, prompting as a response to God's word as he's led. Um, it may be that this is the first time that you ever heard a gospel message, message, that you ever heard that there is a savior that you need desperately, that there is sin in your life that you can't excuse for, but only God can justify. Um, and if that's the case and you have any questions about what it looks like to have an eternal relationship with him, uh, we'd love to share that with you. You can come forward and ask us. Uh, you can move forward at the right of the room with somebody who would love to pray with you. Um, uh, but if that is a question that is lingering in your mind, we'd love to answer that and point you to the Heavenly Father that can only uh, subside for all those needs. Or maybe it is that you've uh, been joining us for a while and then maybe you've met with Lance or the Welcome Home team and this is the time that you want to come forward and make your church membership known, a dysfunctional family that you need friendships alongside you to point towards a heavenly eternal purpose. Uh, this would be the time to do that. But whatever it is and however you need to respond, I'm going to invite you to stand and sing, but whatever posture you need to take, that is truly the one that uh, the Lord has put on you. Um, but let's close with this time of invitation together.